0: 200 years after Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon off of golden plates, the religion is flourishing and attracting new members by going door to door to spread the word of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. However, the church has had its fair share of controversies and some of them like baptizing the dead and the lack of care towards victims in need are a lot darker than the stereotypical depiction of sunny and naive Mormons. Hello, my name is Elder Price. And I would like to share with you the most amazing book. Hello, my name is Elder Young. Did you know that Jesus... Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati, and today we are going to be talking about the Mormons. In last week's episode, we went over their foundation and some of the religious beliefs. If you haven't checked that one out yet, don't worry. We're going to be talking more about the church as an institution in this episode, I'd recommend going back and checking out part one for some context, but it isn't going to be entirely necessary. Now, I do have to warn you before getting into today's episode, we will be covering some dark and disturbing topics. We will be mentioning graphic descriptions of sexual assault with a minor and animal abuse later in the episode. So if that's not something you're ready or prepared for, feel free to skip it and I'll see you in the next one. For everyone else, let's get into it. I baptize thee, having authority from the almighty God, as a testimony that you have entered into a covenant to serve him. To kick things off, let's talk about the church's controversial religious practice, baptizing the dead. I gave you a rundown of this practice in the previous episode, but to quickly reiterate, the belief is that dead souls can be redeemed post-mortem if they are not only baptized, but accept the baptism. Even though the dead can supposedly accept or refuse, they can't stop this baptism from being done, which I would argue is attempting to strip the dead of their religious heritage, rights, beliefs, etc., etc. Thankfully, the Church of Latter-day Saints is the only major religion that actually follows this practice. While this has a distinct religious implication, this also helps the church track and maintain an eerily impressive collection of genealogical records. These records are made publicly available at familysearch.org. The website is a bit difficult to navigate, but their family tree overview, they claim to house records for over 1.2 billion ancestors. In comparison to other genealogy sites out there, it is a bit dated. They don't use DNA records like you'd expect a heritage or genealogy website to do, and the search functions do require a bit of detective work to find specific people in their system. The site is free and partially run by volunteers, which is wild considering the 1.2 billion ancestor statistics the site purports. The church even cites scripture to explain why they are so committed to record keeping, calling it a sacred duty. They explain historical record keeping as a traditional church practice with a major focus on presenting church documents. And they even encourage keeping journals as a form of personal record keeping. Now, this brings us back to their practice of baptizing the dead. You see, when they perform a baptism, they make a record of the individual who was baptized. This would normally be all well and good, except the practice has been used in grossly insensitive scenarios. Most notably, in the 1990s, Jewish genealogists discovered that approximately 380,000 Holocaust victims had been baptized, one of whom was none other than Anne Frank. This is done when church members are escorted to a decorative baptismal font. One member will read a short prayer and another representing the dead relative is the one that will be baptized. The church has a photo of a baptismal font on their website featuring oxen holding up a bath-like structure. The page states that since Jesus taught baptism is essential to salvation, they are offering the blessing of salvation to these deceased Jewish people. Even so, this practice can be upsetting for so many reasons. As Jewish genealogist, Gary Mogatov says, the posthumous baptizing of Holocaust victims reopened Jewish wounds from being forced to convert to Christianity or face death or deportation in the past. So these baptisms repeat this forced conversion onto a group of vulnerable people. And I just don't really buy this idea that the church presents that you have a choice to accept baptism even in death. Regardless of what you think happens after death, I think it's important to be respectful of another's beliefs. And you can't really defend your beliefs when you're dead, no matter which form of afterlife you prescribe to. Fortunately, the Mormon church eventually seemed to agree that this was a bit abhorrent. In 1995, they established a rule barring the baptism of Holocaust victims, except in rare cases in which they are direct ancestors. In addition, the church spent $500,000 removing Jewish names from its baptismal registries as part of an agreement with Jewish leaders in the Holocaust survivor community. It's one of those situations that really gets you wondering who thought it was a good idea in the first place, particularly with the sheer amount of baptisms they performed. In addition to purging their registry, they have implemented additional safeguards in recent years. They hired four full-time staffers who watch the database and block baptisms on restricted names. According to AP News, this includes a list of Holocaust victims sent each month by a Jewish human rights organization in Los Angeles. They also walked back a stance they held previously in 2012 that the church insisted that it could not control pranksters or careless persons who submit Jewish names or famous people. And yes, you heard me right. This practice also extends to famous people. According to Ryan Craigun, an associate professor of sociology who studies Mormonism at the University of Tampa, the baptisms of public figures are likely based on two factors. First, people naturally think about celebrities more often because they see them on TV and in movies and hear them on radio. Secondly, Mormons are similar to other social groups in that they like to claim famous people as their own. Public figures baptized in this manner include Marilyn Monroe, the mother of Queen Elizabeth II, the grandparents of Kim Kardashian, Carrie Fisher, and US politicians, Joe Biden, John McCain, and Mike Pence. In 2017, top LDS leaders stressed the importance of proxy baptism, saying God wants all his children home again in families and in glory, and encouraged young members to get involved. So they seem a bit at odds with themselves. On one hand, they're implementing safeguards to prevent baptizing with reckless abandon, while on the other hand, they're still encouraging the practice. Not to mention, they've also excommunicated members in the past, such as researcher Helen Radke, for speaking out against this practice. The church may have implemented safeguards after the fact, but for some, it seems too little too late. There was one attempt to baptize Holocaust survivor, Simon Wiesenthal, who passed away in 2005, which was thankfully flagged as needing permission. The founder and dean of Simon Wiesenthal Center, Rabbi Marvin Heer asked them to remove his name from the database entirely. He stated, they, the Mormons mean well, but it's insulting to Jews and it would be insulting to Mr. Wiesenthal. He lived a life of good deeds and he doesn't need any assistance getting into heaven. Other critics have said that this movement isn't selfless, but sheer arrogance. The fact that they even asked after 1995 when promising to end the practice has also been called reprehensible with some asking, If a church can't be trusted to keep its word in a matter such as this, then where is its moral standing? And this is only the tip of the controversial iceberg that is the Church of the Latter-day Saints. So we're not off to a great start. So with this practice backed by scripture, what else have they gotten into over the years under the guise of their religious beliefs? Almost unsurprisingly, the church has a long history of racism tied directly to core doctrinal interpretations. You may remember from part one that Mormons believe America to be the promised land and that the Native American people are descendants of the Lamanites. The Lamanites, according to the Book of Mormon, are a group of people who left Israel in 600 BC and settled in the Americas. In addition, the Lamanites are also described as predominantly wicked people cursed by God with a quote, skin of blackness. And I almost think this doesn't need to be said, But when a fundamental part of the religion calls quote, skin of blackness, a curse, the religion might be a little bit inherently racist, just just a smidge. As of late 1981, the church was trying to walk back all of these beliefs. An old New York Times article describes how they tried to alter a prophecy about Native Americans. In a new edition of the book, Mormon, a prophecy said that Native Americans would become white and delightsome has been altered to read that they would become pure and delightsome. So yeah, they apparently originally believed that Native Americans who joined the religion could literally be whitewashed. I I don't know what else I have to say about that. I think it really speaks for itself and not in a good way. With this belief in mind, they put a lot of effort into bringing Native Americans to their religion. According to The Atlantic, the LDS church believed it was responsible for guiding Native Americans towards a more righteous path, requiring them to participate in Mormon Indian student placement programs. And please note that the program name had Indian in it. I am aware that Native American or indigenous person is far more accurate and preferred terminology, but that's literally what the program was called. Now, this program lasted from 1947 to the mid 1990s and had Native American students live with Mormon families during the school year. Some Mormons genuinely believe that this could even lift the supposed curse from Native Americans and thought it would literally lighten their skin color as they grew closer to God. Instead of actually helping Native Americans on their reservations, they just wanted them to assimilate. Clarence Bishop, the director of the program from 1964 to 1968 and executive director from 1968 to 1973 argued that the program was never meant to undermine Native American culture. But if it wasn't meant to undermine Native American culture, why didn't the program focus on integrating the Mormon religion into Native American reservations? Mormons didn't want an exchange program here or to learn about Native American culture. That could have been a fascinating and invaluable experience. Instead, this was about turning Native Americans into white people. And again, like literally, I still can't get over that. Roughly 50,000 children participated in the Mormon Indian student placement program, according to Matthew Garrett, a professor at Bakersfield College. And as with any loosely monitored program with racist undertones involving children, children were abused. In 2016, several lawsuits were filed against the Church of Latter-day Saints related to this very program. At the time this Atlantic article was published, three sexual abuse cases involving four past participants had been filed in Navajo Nation District Court. No criminal charges were brought against the defendants who were all anonymous in their pleadings. The lawsuits also asserted that the culture of the Navajo Nation was irreparably harmed by the LDS Church's continuous and systematic assimilation efforts. In one of the cases, one of the victims claims that he was not only sexually abused, but physically and emotionally abused and forcibly had his mouth washed out with soap whenever he spoke Navajo to other placement children in the home, according to court documents. With the evidence presented in these lawsuits, it becomes increasingly difficult to believe Clarence Bishop when he said it wasn't meant to undermine Native American culture. And unfortunately, in contrast with their response to issues related to proxy baptism, the church doesn't seem to have made really any steps to atone for and prevent this treatment of Native Americans. Yes, they did amend the Book of Mormon itself, but changing a couple little fucking weird ass words doesn't do anything to amend their blatant destruction of familial culture. I'd like to see the church dedicate resources to preserving Native American culture, but I doubt that will ever happen. Now, it isn't just Native Americans that have experienced Mormon racism. Dark skin is or at least was described as evil in their scripture after all. Early Mormon teaching spoke of black people as inferior, cursed by God and unworthy to serve as clergy. The curse known as the curse of Cain states that God marked Cain with blackness and cursed him so he would forever be persecuted. This curse appears to be the same one we referenced earlier in this episode with the Lamanites who were also cursed by God. Several other teachings in the Book of Mormon speak of black skin as vile and evil and white skin as pure and delightsome. Additionally, the scriptures imply God would darken the skin of people who fell out of his favor and lighten that of those who pleased him. And that is as in the literal whitewashing we talked about earlier. However, there is a little bit of conflicting information here. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon religion, supposedly periodically opposed slavery and tolerated the priesthood ordination of black men one of whom, Elijah Abel, occupied a position of minor authority. So there does seem to be some weight to the idea that the Book of Mormon's initial translation meant to present black and white conceptually was without a racially charged angle. It was Brigham Young, Smith's successor, who adopted the racist policies that now haunt the church. This included the curse of Cain concept in addition to the bans on mixed race marriage and not allowing the ordination of black priests. It was in 1852 that Young created this ban, and it wasn't until 1978 that the church lifted it. There was no apology involved, merely a reversal. To this day, many Mormons believe that the ban in place had been God's will. It's also worth noting that being allowed into the church's temple for ordinances like sealing and endowments allows Mormons to enter the highest level of heaven after death, the celestial kingdom. Therefore, until 1978, black people within the Mormon church couldn't get into the highest level of heaven, Their supposed curse of Cain not only meant discrimination on earth, but in the afterlife too. Unsurprisingly, the church has had a hard time separating itself from its racist origins. Scholars say the number of black Mormons, minuscule before 1978, is an estimated 5,000 to 10,000 as of 2005. And that's relative to an estimated 5.5 million American Mormons at the time. And as a side note, please note that this does not mean that every modern day Mormon is racist. I'm not going to excuse anyone involved for the damage caused by their actions, but I'm also not gonna pretend that just because this is how the church used to act, the church acts the exact way now in modern times. However, the foundations of beliefs that these modern day Mormons are raised in come from some pretty fucked up origin. So I think it's important to highlight that. Even so, while Mormon leaders generally criticize past and present racism, they carefully avoid any specific criticism of past presidents and apostles, careful not to disrupt traditional reverence for the church's prophets. Personally, I think condemning these actions is key for taking responsibility and moving forward in order to heal the damage that's been done. Although there's a part of me that still really finds it hilarious in a really fucked up way that like, they believe in Jesus, right? And everything, you know, essentially Jesus did. But Jesus, historical Jesus from Israel would have been in like the Middle East. He would not have been white. I, I, it's one thing I've never understood why religions wanted to whitewash Jesus so badly. But anyway, before we continue on through the rest of the episode, I'm gonna place today's sponsor here because after this sponsored segment, we're gonna get into some of the more controversial abuse and church behavior that occurred within this specific Mormon LDS church. Please be prepared that after this ad read, things are going to get a lot darker and a lot more disgusting and a lot more upsetting. So if this is the point where this was already too much for you, please do not proceed post the ad. If you're still here afterwards, Good luck because it's bad, I promise. It's really, really bad. When it comes to shaving, especially for me with shaving my legs, it can be a miserable, painful process full of cuts, scrapes, random bloodletting. It's a nightmare. And I so desperately, and so desperately, need my dolphin legs to be consistently in existence. That's why I use Athena Club to make sure that my legs do stay dolphin smooth at all times. Athena Club's razor has built-in skin guards that are gentle on curves and help prevent razor burn. Their razor blades are surrounded by a water activated serum with shea butter and hyaluronic acid. And their razor kit is only $9 and it comes with two blade heads, a magnetic hook for shower storage and your choice of handle color. And there's six color options to choose from and you can choose how often they send replacement blades. I now finally have my hands on the lilac color. It's a limited edition color. It comes back in stock every once in a while. And I finally got my hands on one and I am never letting that go. She's never going on vacations with me. I have the peach one that's now gonna be the vacation one and the lilac one that stays at home. And if you wanna show your skin you care, make sure you try the Athena Club razor kit. Sign up today and you'll get 20% off your first order. Just go to athenaclub.com and use promo code casket. That's athenaclub.com with promo code casket for 20% off. Today's episode is also sponsored by HelloFresh, America's number one meal delivery kit. Because sometimes life is a little tricky, it switches things up on you, and sometimes you just don't have the energy to plan out all your meals or even go to the grocery store. And in some cases, it's not even fully safe to go to the grocery store. But that's where HelloFresh steps in because they deliver pre-portioned ingredients straight to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week, because convenience and quality can actually go together. Plus, HelloFresh lets you easily customize your order. It's one of my favorite things about them, and you can do it through your desktop browser or you can do it through their app. You can change your delivery day, your food preferences, your plan size, even skip a week when you need to. No one's schedule is that consistent and they are flexible to move with you. And that's one of my favorite things that I love about them. Sometimes I just wanna skip some of the meals. Maybe sometimes I just wanna slack off and just eat some ramen. It happens and it happens to me a bit. But the one thing I'll never ever miss out on is whenever I see firecracker meatballs on the menu, it's on site that box is coming home with me. So go to hellofresh.com slash casket16 and use code casket16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 16 free meals and three free gifts at hellofresh.com slash casket16 with code casket16. Now, we're going to talk about how the Mormon Church has become notorious for allegedly covering up abuse cases within their community and protecting abusers more than they do the victims. The Mormon Church's website says that abuse in any form, whether physical, emotional, or sexual, isn't tolerated. They add that the Lord expects us to do everything we can to prevent abuse and to protect and help victims. No one is expected to endure abusive behavior. However, church members claim that this is exactly what they've done for decades while suffering at the hands of church leaders. One woman, who I'll call Jane Doe, said that Joseph Layton Bishop, a former president of the Mormon Church's Provo, Utah Missionary Training Center, had torn her blouse, pulled up her skirt, and attempted to rape her. Bishop was in his 80s at the time that Jane Doe confronted him, and these events happened over three decades prior. Bishop admitted that he'd struggled his entire life with sex addiction and apologized to her, but denied any memory of an assault. The interview of Bishop's apology sparked national news coverage a few years ago, leading many to question just how much abuse the Mormon church hadn't acted on. After all, Jane Doe had filed complaints in 2010 and out of sheer desperation, even threatened to kill Bishop to try and force the church to act. They ignored the complaints, stating that there was no evidence to prove Bishop's guilt. Bishop's family claimed that their father was elderly and confused and that he didn't understand what the term sexual addiction means when the allegations spread. Yet, Jane Doe wasn't the only one who insisted that the church ignored them. One lawsuit in 2013 alleged that the Mormon church and several officials didn't protect children at the church from a teenager who was ultimately convicted of sexually abusing two young children. The church claimed that the allegations were false, offensive, and unsubstantiated, and they encouraged parents to report the abuse to the police. Still, plaintiffs in this case have argued that the Jensen family and their son, Michael, who had been molesting other kids while he babysat them were well-respected members of the church. Michael's grandfather apparently held an international leadership role while his father was a high priest and his mother was in charge of administering to the needs of the women of the local church. One plaintiff and mother, Helen, claims that she told Bishop Fishel about the abuse and when he didn't get back to her about how it was being handled, she confronted him. Fishel allegedly told her that he was counseling Michael on pornography, but Michael was a good kid from a good family and left it at that. When later asked to speak with ABC News, official claimed that he never met with Helen and that he was simply told their child had been acting strange since Michael Jensen babysat them, alleging he wasn't told about sexual or physical abuse. Helen and five others banded together to file this lawsuit, but the church and its leaders, through various points, continued to deny that meetings about Michael had ever occurred. Caroline Mehta, an attorney for the plaintiffs, told ABC News that, quote, they say it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to abuse one, end quote. Michael Jensen was sentenced to 35 to 75 years in prison for the extent of his abuse. A settlement was eventually reached in the case and the church's excuse for their inaction that Jensen had fooled them and lied to church officials was widely criticized. And I personally find it very hard to believe that Fischl was never told about the physical and sexual abuse. Not simply because Helen claims that he was, but because multiple parents and children had the same complaints. Plus, I'm not sure what lawyer or court would let you sue someone for ignoring sexual abuse without some kind of evidence or corroboration that you told them in the first place. A year after the Jensen case made headlines, word began to spread about how deep these cover ups went. One AP News article in 2020 detailed how the Mormon church was being sued for their alleged role in the Boy Scouts' sex abuse. I talk about the Boy Scouts in a separate episode about a year, year and a half ago, but needless to say, the decades of sexual abuse that were gone unnoticed or ignored within that organization is deeply disturbing. Seven male victims brought forward seven separate lawsuits, each alleging that they suffered similar treatment. According to AP News, public records show that church sponsored Boy Scouts troops who were abused would tell church bishops about what they had experienced the lawsuits alleged bishops would tell the victims to keep quiet so the church could conduct its own investigation. While these troop leaders and volunteers accused of abuse were under investigation, they were also permitted to continue in their roles, though they might be assigned to a different troop. Once again, a church spokesman denied this and said the Mormon faith has a zero tolerance policy for abuse of any kind. Yet the church sponsored at least seven troops in Arizona and every single one of those have faced allegations of sexual abuse spanning from 1972 to 2009. Even if this had only happened once, it would be inexcusable. However, the fact that this happened on numerous occasions within the church-sponsored troops points to this being systemic issues. AP News also states that the Mormon church was actually the largest sponsor of Boy Scouts of America troops and their greatest ally until the partnership ended on January 1st, 2020, and they pulled almost half a million people in favor of their own religion and spiritual development program. Just a few months ago, it was actually announced the church will pay $250 million into a fund for the Boy Scout sexual abuse claims, but headlines continue to spread the message that the Mormons were allegedly responsible for covering up this abuse in the first place. While the Mormon church scrambled to do some damage control, one lawsuit brought forward later that year was especially disturbing. And please be warned, the next few minutes will discuss SA, animal abuse, and will involve some level of graphic detail. According to this suit, two Mormon bishops and a teacher failed to report a father's repeated sexual and physical abuse of three of his children, Jane Doe, Jane Doe Two, and John Doe. And I'm sorry if I sound a little bit frustrated here. I have literally rerecorded this section, I think about 17 times now because I can't fucking get through the next couple sentences. So I'm sorry if I'm just like, I'm, I just can't fucking say it. It's just so gross. I'm gonna try this again for the 18th time. One portion of this reads that the father, Paul, would publicly brag about his abuse of conduct, going so far as to boast on a group chat that he has the perfect lifestyle where he can have sex with his two daughters and his wife doesn't care and she knows. It added that Jane Doe 2's sexual abuse and rape started when she was less than six months of age. To punish his children, Paul would force them to watch him run over the family cat with his car until it died. Paul also uploaded footage online of himself raping Jane Doe when she was nine years old, which is how the Department of Homeland Security eventually became involved. DHS served a search warrant of the family home and seized thousands of pieces of child pornography, many of them, including Jane one and two. The sexual and physical abuse in this case is truly grotesque and it's unforgivable. And yet what I just described in a couple sentences, which cannot make up for the years of abuse that these children face, Mormon counselors instructed the family Paul's wife specifically to forgive and forget the abuse perpetrated by her husband. I am at a loss of words. I find it hard to understand. I my brain does not wrap around this type of abuse. How you could do this to your own children? I I yeah, um There's so much I want to say, but I can't put it in words because it is so disgusting. And it just makes me so fucking angry that for some reason this was, you know, just forgive and forget, like what? Now, as for the Mormon church, they directed a family physician asking for permission to report the abuse to a helpline and told him that since he had clergy penitent privilege, the abuse didn't need to be reported. The lawsuit claims that this helpline is a place not actually to protect or serve victims, but for attorneys to snuff out complaints and protect the church from potentially costly lawsuits. Whether or not you believe the Mormon church is malicious in doing this in some attempt to protect their money or that their negligence is abusive in of itself, one allegation has made itself known. The church has allowed abusers to thrive. While we've seen this before with other church organizations, there are a few things about Mormonism that makes their situation unique. For example, while school officials can be mandated reporters, meaning they are required to report abuse when they're made aware of it, bishops and other Mormon leaders are not mandated reporters. The law in Utah currently states that this reporting requirement specifically does not apply to any member of the clergy. There's been a lot of debate around this. And frankly, considering the cases we've gone over, I do believe the law should be changed. Unfortunately, attempts to do so have been struck down, not giving me much hope that anything will change and that abuse will simply just not really be addressed. You might be wondering how the Mormon church has been able to afford all of this litigation and controversy. Their finances are in fact, a controversy in of itself. They currently have over $100 billion in tax-free assets, and that's billion with a B. When you think about how much money it is, the fact that they only had to pay 1 400th, 1 400 of what they had to the people that were abused in the Mormon Boy Scout troops by Mormon Boy Scout leaders is pretty upsetting. The IRS and public learned of this massive fund in late 2019 when whistleblower David Nielsen, a Mormon that worked at the church's investment division and signed peak advisors spoke out. According to David's brother, Lars, quote, Having seen tens of billions in contributions and scores more in investment returns come in and having seen nothing except two unlawful distributions to for-profit concerns go out, David was dejected beyond words and so was I. The fact that the Mormons are asked to tithe or give 10% of their income to the church like many other faiths, that's not the weird part. The church collects around $7 billion a year from this. And while 6 billion goes towards operating costs, the other 1 billion is transferred to Ensign where it generates returns and basically just sits as one of the largest rainy day funds ever. Ensign's president, Roger Clark, claims that these funds are sitting there so they can be used for the second coming of Christ. But critics say that it's ridiculous how financially struggling members are asked to tithe when the money is just going to just sit around. Many called for total and complete financial transparency after this, while the organization FAIR, Faithful Answers and Formed Responses, argued that this simply was not possible. FAIR explained that full disclosure wouldn't give much more information than was already available, and it would come at great expense. They also argued that the reason Mormons only give 40 million annually to humanitarian efforts is because, quote, critics also overlook the fact that if money is spent to feed the needy, the money is gone. On the other hand, if the church reinvests in Salt Lake City's downtown core, this provides jobs and economic stimulus. While providing fewer short-term gains, this long-term teach a man to fish strategy would ultimately benefit many more people. And personally, and let me be frank here, the mindset is selfish and bullshit. You can't claim to be a charitable organization that wants to help the needy while simultaneously asking for tithes from poor members and investing in Utah's downtown instead of like, I don't know, feeding the fucking poor. Sure, giving construction jobs to people by asking them to build churches might be helpful, but it's still helping yourself too. Plus, we've already talked about the severe downsides to missionary work. So the church and organizations like FAIR claiming that construction and missionary work is how Mormons best help others is hollow. This isn't to say that Mormons don't help the needy, but to point out a few questionable points in their narrative. That's just all I'm kind of saying, just some just some thinking points, just food for thought. Fair, as the article describes from the Deseret, has also stated that these tithings are considered sacred because they, the members that donate them, consider them as belonging to the Lord and therefore find it inappropriate to disclose what's done with them. Active Mormon church leaders have historically argued that more transparency within Mormonism isn't necessary, despite many of these same people arguing that more transparency from the government is. One 2017 poll claims that 93% of Utah voters want the latter, while 42% of Utah voters don't desire this from the church. About two thirds of respondents to this poll identified as Mormons. Ensign has been posting quarterly reports since the event, revealing more about the church's investments. However, former Mormons have allegedly often said to follow the money when discussing church policies and doctrine. One writer for the Salt Lake Tribune, Matt Harrison has also argued that he believed the $100 billion investment fund isn't necessarily about money, but loyalty. Asking new, potentially poorer members to tithe is essentially asking them to care about the church's future. When Harrison was a former member, he says that bearing witness or tithing in front of other members and cleaning the church instead of hiring a janitor was all about showing sacrifice and bringing people closer together. Again, this is only one former Mormon's opinion, but it is an interesting perspective to say the least. Now, by no means are these the only controversies within the Mormon church. However, genealogy, racism, abuse, and their finances are probably four of the largest that seemed appropriate to discuss. And even as I say that I've discussed them, there's so much more I could get into. Like I could literally turn into an entire channel just discussing specific things about Mormonism and how weird, racist, money-grubbing, abusive it is. I'm not gonna be that. There are other channels that do dedicate their time to discussing what goes on in the Church of Mormon. And I'm gonna leave it to them because I think they're probably better at it than me. But I think it's important all the same to at least give an overview and explain to maybe people like myself who have never been part of the Mormon faith to take a look and and see what the outsider's perspective looking in, what does that look like? And that's kind of what I'm doing. It's not conclusive. It's not everything under the sun. I know there's things I missed. I'm probably mispronouncing a few more words, but I tried. Today, however, Americans largely seem wary of Mormonism and I can't really blame them. Some such as Hutchinson Jones, a Harvard University administrator who has written extensively on the topic, claims that Mormonism remains problematic for many. She's argued that many Americans learned about Mormonism from sister wives and big love, which are not necessarily wholly accurate. Still, the Pew Research Center's data demonstrates that about half of Americans feel they know a fair amount about the Mormon religion and they have a relatively favorable opinion of it. Over the years, data shows that attitudes seem to have softened and more awareness of the Mormon church has spread when Mormon Mitt Romney ran for president. However, the Mormons have frequently been mocked, especially after the play, The Book of Mormon made it to Broadway. As The Atlantic puts it, the Catholic got sounds of music, Jews got fiddler on the roof, and Mormons got South Park on stage. I'm about to do it for the first time. And I'm gonna do it. With a girl, a special girl. who makes my heart- On the other hand, a Mormon writer for the Deseret says it's better to be mocked than ignored and that it's a credit to his people that Mormons have never responded with violence. It seems like the absolute bare minimum to me. I don't think not responding with violence is a good thing either. It's just kind of human decency. Like, wow, congratulations. You hit the bar that's on the fucking floor. Good job. Now, here's the thing, like, Reality for a moment here. I do believe it is wrong to mock Mormons to some extent for the sheer fact that it makes light of very real and deeply disturbing issues within their church. That doesn't mean I think the South Park creators were wrong for their episode on Mormonism, but I think people need to be more aware of how the church has ignored abusers and how they've treated victims. If we just mock and make fun of Mormons and we give them the sort of victim status as the Deseret writer puts it, and then it makes it harder to call them out as abusers. Laughing about golden plates and the out there beliefs is most certainly one thing, and I I do find them absurd, and I find it hard to logically wrap my brain around some of these things that feel more like mythos than you know religious beliefs. But that's just my opinion. But the reality is, is many of the church's actions are not laughing matters, and those need to be treated seriously. But with all of that being said, again, that's my opinion. I. Hope maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't agree with me, maybe you have some kind of different viewpoint, maybe I missed something altogether. I'm more than willing to listen and see maybe what have we missed. But again, with that being said, that is going to be the end of today's episode of the Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new today, albeit quite disturbing content today, but I hope you learned something new today. Maybe it rounded out your understanding of the Mormon church and some of the things they've done or hidden allegedly in the past. Make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date on all Corporate Casket and Multi-Level Monday episodes. Thank you so much for being here with me today, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.